If you're in this class today or this evening, it is uh, Urban Apologetics. Uh, this is our third week going through it, but also our second week defining what urban apologetics is. And today is more Bible. <laughs> today is more gospel stuff. Last week was just a recap of sociology, uh, history, and how that gives us the context for urban apologetics. But today, as I promised, we'll dive into more Bible. And I'm so excited because I feel like a Christian again. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Um, with that said, would somebody like to pray us in uh, as we get started? Come on, Deja. There's a verse I have at the top to start our time, and I want to read that for us. We do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretense or pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Second Corinthians 10 verses three through five. As we talk about urban apologetics and apologetics in general, I want us to get this thought in mind. I've given a lot of facts about history, uh, even about scripture, church history, but I don't want to lose sight of the fact that what we do in apologetics is warfare. It is literally spiritual warfare. Paul says that our weapons come against strongholds. When you think about strongholds, it's a place where uh, Satan, uh, demonic powers have sunken in, right? It's a place where they have literally dug in deep and have taken control of. And so think about the soul of a person. Think about the mind of a person and how Satan in the world that we live in has minds and souls captured with ideas about Christianity and Christ. And so what apologetics does is it goes on the ground of those arguments, of those ideas, of those ideologies that are false about Christianity. And by the precision, the spirit and power of God, it's encroaching on that ground. So the person can see Christ clearly and that, God, and that God by his grace can set the person free as they hear about the truth of Jesus. And I'm saying that because as we dive more into urban apologetics today, you'll see the different ideas people have about Christianity and how a lot of the stuff Satan has used to literally grab their mind and hold it strong. And so the stuff I'm sharing is not just to share so you can have hey, facts about Jesus and facts about God, but we're literally helping ourselves, teaching ourselves how to engage with the soul of a person where Satan has taken his hands and clutches and has dug in because the gospel sets us free. That's what Easter was all about Sunday, how the God of the universe put his son on the cross, dying for our sins to set us free. And so as we think about apologetics, Think about it in terms of, man, God has given me or has equipped me with the right words for this time to engage the heart and soul of a person so they can see the beauty of Jesus and that God, by his grace, may set them free in his own time. And so I want us to start there because I do not want us to lose sight of that. And though this is warfare, it's a warfare not like the world. It's won by love, but it's love mixed in with truth and grace. And ultimately, in whatever ministry you do, 
counseling ministry, pastoral ministry, apologetics, evangelism. It's engaging in a spiritual battle, hoping that with love, truth, and grace, man, God can set a person free. And that's why we're here. So, recapping last week. Um, nope, sorry about that. Outcomes for this week, I'm sorry. Understand the false narratives about Christianity uh, that urban apologetics addresses. Then also, two, uh, we want to be able to give practical answers for narratives about Christianity. So going back to last week, we learned what urban apologetics is. It is apologetics within the black context. It's apologetics helping people of color that feel a certain way about Christianity. You are speaking to their minds, to their hearts, so they can tear down this false view about Christ and Christianity so they, so they can see the truth of Jesus. That's what urban apologetics is. It's helping minorities see the beauty of Jesus in their context, in their language, in their culture, and how the gospel specifically speaks to the issues of them, right? We also learned that in urban apologetics, you're engaging these arguments, the conscious community, right? That's a part of, of, of a black culture that says the black man or black woman must be reawakened to who they are, be conscious of who they are. And a lot of times that means leaving Christianity and embracing other movements and faiths, right? So it speaks to that context. It speaks to how to engage the LGBTQIA community, right? So how does in urban apologetics, I engage someone that feels like, you know what? I think the Bible has an outdated sexual ethic. I think it has an outdated view of sex and marriage and relationships. How do we speak into that? Also, urban apologetics engages that. It engages the history of racism and injustice in America. It talks about uh, patriarchy, right? Uh, the whitewashing of Christianity. And I left this out last week, but I want to say it. Even conspiracy theories. Can I just be honest for a second? Because of COVID, in the past five or six years, I would say even going back to the past two decades, if we're honest, probably longer than that, conspiracy theories. Like things are running rampant in our culture, on social media, on Facebook, on memes. And sometimes this stuff has gotten in our churches and in our pews. And it has torn churches apart based on, I saw this, I read this, this website, that website, they covering up. So, even with conspiracy theories, how do you get to the truth of what's going on from a Christian context to where you give a truth of the gospel where Satan, in the, in the area where Satan will love to cause division and strife, which he has done over the past couple of years? Can I get an amen, somebody? In other words, man, how do we think? How does the gospel shape our worldviews? We talked about the Great Migration uh, and how that helped to shape black thought over the past hundred years. And something I, I didn't touch on last week I wanted to add, and this is my mistake. Um, I didn't mention uh, how trauma ties into this. So if you think about trauma in, in a couple of ways, uh, one way is a term we call collective trauma. And so what collective trauma does is uh, it looks at how trauma is passed down in the community, right? And so if you look at uh, like Jewish Holocaust survivors, uh, Armenians in Europe, and even uh, black Americans uh, post-slavery, like there is a collective trauma that can be passed down in communities. And what that means is, is that when one generation experiences something, if there's not healing and restoration in that pain, in that trauma, in that abuse, in that misuse, those mindsets are passed down from child to child, cousin to cousin, aunt to aunt. And the reason why that's important because in urban apologetics is, is the fact that if a generation has encountered the abuse and misuse of Christianity and it has not been restored, that faulty stronghold that Satan can set up in the mind 
can be passed down spiritually in how kids talk about Jesus and the church and the gospel. And we're seeing that in our generation today where, where, where lots of young black Americans are leaving the faith. There is a collective trauma that has been built up over time and now we're seeing the results of that. I didn't mention that last week, so that was my mistake. But I wanna highlight that before we get started is there is a collective trauma piece that we have to address. But guess what? The gospel speaks to that restoration and healing too. The gospel can heal generations. It can heal families. It can heal people. And that's what we, that's what we want people to experience and to see. And then lastly, uh, last week we talked about King and how King wrote this book called Where Do We Go From Here? And he talks about how as he, with the gospel infused in his heart, tries to fight for the equality for black Americans, he found himself at odds with the black power movement. Uh, Stokely Carmichael and other guys, right? So they're in Chicago and they're, and they're marching for equal rights for black Americans in the North. And they found that there is a, that there is a difference in their ideology. Both want black Americans to be free from the injustices of society, right? But there's like a different ideology. King embraced nonviolence, love and peace. And the black power movement wanted power because power is what wins. White people have power for so long. Now it's time for us black people to have power. If we have to use violence to get it, we'll get it. King, King met that. In the book, Where Do We Go From Here? He talks all about that. There was one guy named James Cone, theologian, wrote a landmark book called The Cross and the Lynching Tree. James Cone tried to mirror, and he tried to marry the two concepts. He tried to marry um, how does the gospel and black power merged together, right? And so we're not going to get into, into that today because that's a whole another class conversation, but I just wanted to say that because there is a theology right there, it's, it's called liberation theology. And it talks, and Cohn literally says, uh, tries to explain how we marry these two things together. In your free time, feel free to look it up. It's a good study. Cohn is radical now, just so you just be warned, but he does make some compelling uh, arguments. All right, I'm done talking for now. Icebreaker. Y'all talk amongst each other. How would you describe the word narrative? And what happens when a narrative is applied to a person, a group, or something else? Y'all talk about it. Extra's brother. These are old. Okay. Okay. Come on in, bro. Okay. I got you. There you go.
Can I have like an impromptu icebreaker just to keep more conversation going? If this has happened, and if this is a, and this is a safe place for you, feel free to share. But feel free to share a time where a narrative about something may have impacted you personally. It's a safe space. Y'all feel free to dialogue. I got all kinds of stories in college about narratives oh, regarding her. I just, I just play. I just play. There was a narrative. <laughs> One more minute, one more minute. All right, time's up. Let's turn back. Who wants to share first about their narratives they've experienced or have encountered on this side of eternity, this side of history.
God has cut us down, we just kind of like accepted it as truth almost, mm-hmm. uh, depending on, you know, whatever it is about, we just pretty much are like, yeah, that's, that's always true universally. Yeah. Um, but we also said, Charlie was also saying how like, it's not, so narratives in and of themselves are not necessarily positive or negative, mm. uh, but how they're applied can create like a stigma or like that's good. Time. Yeah. That's good. Yeah, man. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of what we went with the narrative Did y'all hear that? Did y'all hear that? That's good. Well, mm. also, I, I, I guess I'm not sure enough kind of therapy. Like, I feel like a lot of therapy is like creating your own narrative. Mm. Anytime one of because we had really interesting, like, yeah, very different gut reaction signs and narrative. A lot of like, no, like, the idea of like creating your story can be empowering in terms of making sense of things you've experienced. Mm-hmm. It's really disorienting until like you come to a place where you can say, Oh, the way I act makes sense in light of this and the way this person acts like where there's just power in storytelling. But then I think there's a difference between maybe like you being able <laughs> uh, <laughs> Once you once you go once you finish, I'm gonna go after you. Okay. So remember I told you guys before we started how we have an enemy that that likes to create strongholds in our lives. A lot of times those strongholds are in our own minds and in our own emotions, right? I want to kind of marry what you said, the verse about strongholds and trauma that I mentioned earlier. The way our brains are wired it's wired to make connections. That means something because whenever you experience pain in your life or trauma in your life, your, your mind will automatically make its own narrative about what happened. It will form a story because it's trying to make sense of why I'm going through or why I went through what I went through. And it can be very dangerous if it's not untangled and unwinded. And so because we have an enemy that knows humanity, he's been watching us for thousands of years because he knows the pains of this life, because he knows every deception, every scheme, every lie, every trick in the book. If we're not walking with the Lord and listening to his spirit and diving into God's word and we encounter the junk of this world, the pains of this life that will knock us down and we struggle to get up. Little thoughts, little memes, things you hear, your own thoughts you wrestle with, apart from the Lord, can form a narrative in your mind about something. And next thing you know, you're running with it. And that thing becomes a stronghold. Now you're living, now you're living through this narrative. And sometimes, man, that stuff can destroy your entire life, your relationships, your job, your ministry, whatever it is. Man, those things are powerful. Narratives are really powerful, but you got to believe the right thing. Okay, I'm done talking. Anyone else wants to go? Awkward silence is is, is, is okay with me. Yeah. And how do we want this to end? You know, I think it's powerful. 
it's amazing how we, like you said, Bob, how we want it to end. It's amazing how we can create these own things in our minds, right? To where we come up with the outcome of our own story or be the hero of our own story, right? These things are, man, these are common among humanity, right? And so I shared, I, that was my icebreaker because we're gonna walk through just some narratives about Christianity that urban apologetics deals with. And the first one is Jesus wasn't real. So in the black community and even among atheists, right? And this fits, you know, these, you know, these conversations. Let me start with the black community first and then, you know, atheists uh, as a whole. There's a group um, in, in our circle, they call themselves comedics, right? Comedic spirituality, pretty much. Uh, it's the idea that as, as, as black people in America, we need to forego Christianity and we need to embrace the Egyptian God culture, right? Raz like, uh-huh. <laughs> so it's really big, y'all. Trust me, it is out there. And so their whole idea is we need to embrace uh, Egyptian gods because Jesus Christ was not a real person. In fact, he was copied from the gods of Kemet of Egypt. So you're worshiping this dude that was created, whereas the Egyptian gods had the real thing, right? And some of y'all just like, that's crazy. I know it's crazy. But then also too, if you look at atheism as a whole, Right, some of them may try to say, man, guess what? Jesus wasn't real, right? You will encounter these in academia, among professors, among scholars, around historians, right? They'll say things like, Jesus was not real. And so when someone says that, right, they've already said that the Bible is not gonna be used in our conversation. How do you engage with that? How do you do it? Well, we're going to read three ancient historian quotes about Jesus that are non-biblical. It's gonna help us see that there was an actual man named Jesus that walked the earth that secular historians had no reason to even know his name, but they know about him. So we're gonna read these three accounts of him, right? The first one is Tacitus, right? And so. Somebody read that first bullet point uh, where it says Tacitus. Christus. Procurator. Thank you, brother. So Tacitus was a secular Roman historian, and he wrote a book called The Annals. And in The Annals, he's pretty much describing um, Imperial Rome. He's going through major facts about Roman history during his time period. He was around during the first century, around the time Jesus was killed. And because the Romans thought that, you know, the Jews and their beliefs were like foolish, they didn't write a whole lot about Jesus and Christians because at that time they're like this stuff is annoying and let's just get rid of it but he does make a note to say something and my guy Martez has read it Christos from their name the Christians is derived from was executed at the hands of Pontius Pilate in the reign of Tiberius Caesar guess who else puts similar facts about biblical history in their narrative Luke the gospel writer Luke 3 1 he says that these things came about in the reign of Tiberius Caesar. So Luke, the gospel writer, and this secular Roman historian named Tacitus, who has nothing to do with Christianity, oh, they say the exact same thing. Okay, maybe he may, he may have been real. Okay. 
I need more proof, man. Joe is talking to me. I need more proof, man. Tell me more. Okay. All right, let's go. So somebody read what Suetonius said. Who? Oh. Claudius the Emperor. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Acts 18.2 makes a similar statement. So Suetonius, again, is a, is, is a Roman historian or chronicler, right? He says again, Christos, he says the Jews were continuously making disturbances at the instigation of Christus or Christ that the Emperor at that time, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Acts 18.2 says the exact same thing. It says that because there was so much commotion amongst the Jews, Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome. Guess who wrote Luke and Acts? Luke, the gospel writer. So we have two secular historians of Rome at that time that have no tie to Jesus say the exact same thing that Luke, our gospel writer, writes. Okay, G, this ain't funny no more. This ain't funny, okay. Can you give me one more thing to help me just see that this dude Christ was real? Like, cause I still ain't feeling this. I can't believe it, bro. Okay, let's read Josephus. And just to give you uh, some context of Josephus, okay, y'all don't, I'm, I'm a nerd, it's okay, it's okay. Y'all see this book right here? This is the complete works of Josephus. Look how thick this book is. This book is 1,149 pages. He is a secular Jewish scholar of first century Rome. He sees the destruction of the temple that Christ prophesied in AD 70. And he writes an entire account of Jewish history going back to Abraham. And in it, he just so happens to mention this little carpenter from Nazareth, whose name was Jesus. My boy, Josh Warren, read it for me, brother. And, and use your teaching voice that you use in Africa, brother. Use it. That you use in the motherland. Use it. Stop. Condemn him to what? Oh, what was what was Sunday? And he got up early. Come on, Spade. Come on, Josh. Come on. Come on. I'm sorry, y'all had to do it. Come on. are not extinct to this day. And he says Christians. So another thing, Josephus was not a believer. Neither three of these guys are believers, but they both make mention that we cannot tell the history of Rome at this time. And we can't tell the history of the Jewish race without mentioning this dude named Jesus. So you would think that if these three guys, and these are just examples, there are probably more out there as well, but if these three guys that are renowned at their time for being credible historians mention this guy named Jesus, it would behoove me to think that, yo, this dude may just have been real. But now if he's real, and we have a whole book about what he says in his word, okay, now we have to really be listening. Okay, what does this man Jesus say? Okay, he's saying this. He's the son of God. Okay, so now two things are happening. Either he crazy or he's really the son of God. 
And then if we talk about him raising from the dead, okay. Did that really happen? Maybe. But why would the gospel writers mention women as the first witnesses of the resurrection in the patriarchal society where, where, where a woman's testimony was the equivalent of a criminal's? Why would these men use them as the first witnesses and not take them out as a way to convince people unless it really happened now we have to wrestle with something either you believe man or you don't before I move on to our next point does anything kind of is anything coming to you anything you want to share So that was, so Rome, <coughs> a couple things. Rome spoke Latin, but at the same time too, uh, the dominant language at that time was also Greek. So you kind of had Latin and Greek kind of competing as like the languages of the Roman Empire. And Christus and Christos are both how you would say Christ in, in Greek and Latin. So. So what, and so that's the English way of how you would say it in those Christos, Christos. So that's why it's like that. So if if if, if it was in Hebrew, it'd be Messiah, right? That's what it would be. In English, we say Christ, right? Christ, English, Latin, Christos, uh, Greek, Christos, and then Hebrew would be Messiah. So pretty much what they're saying is, this dude was called the Messiah. So that's why they say that. Am, am I right? Is that good to me? All right. That's, that's my Latin scholar right there. <laughs> it's also, I always think it's interesting because we, we see Christianity as so big right now. Mm -hmm. And like back then, it's just like this little cult. Like yeah. Like a, yeah. Nobody likes them. Like they're, like they're doing good for poor people. So like they're not that going, but like Jews don't like them. So like they're, they're, everybody thinks they're like a part of the Jews. And so yeah. Like we don't like these guys. <laughs> Um, and so they're not like a, like dominant in any way, except it's not going away. Like yeah. They're annoying. It's like we killed their leader uh -huh. and we're driving these people from the cities. Yeah. But why we still keep hearing about them? Mm -hmm. They just won't go away. Yeah. And they're not like <laughs> fighting it. They're not like causing uprights. They're just, yeah, they're Scrappy, I love that word. It's just scrappy. Yeah. Hmm. So, come on. Come on. Come on. I hope I have an answer. Uh-oh. I know why you asked me that. <laughs> I know why she asked me that. Okay. I know why. So, so the name Jesus, the, what was the letter J introduced, Josh? What is the letter J? Yeah. From what I recall, letter J came into the English alphabet. I want to say, was it 13, 13, 14? I don't know. Why Jax that, though? <laughs> Dude, this is safe space. I may even turn the recorder off. This you can ask it. I'll just say it. There is a controversy. Are you wondering if it's like special? Uh -huh.
Oh, why why didn't say Jesus? Why did say Christ? Okay, okay, okay. Jesus is a common name. So Jesus is like a normal Hebrew name. You know, like David and stuff like Samuel. Yeah, yeah. And so like, there's a bunch of Jesuses. So that's why they say like son of Joseph a lot of times. You know? Yeah. And so they'll throw the Christ on there as like a signifier, but it's like a good signifier. Sometimes it's probably they're probably using it maybe ironically. They like this. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. 1524. 1524. Larry J. Appreciate you, Mo. That's my guy. So 1524, that's it. 1524, yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, yeah. 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 That was like his title. Yeah. Like his title. Yeah. And to them, yeah, he was Christ. Yeah. And then he has this band of misfits yeah. that, <laughs> this, right, the bad news bears, right? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They ain't the Avengers yet. They ain't the Avengers. But this crew, that's just like you said, they pesky, they're annoying. But we have to write about them because, like, they claim this dude died and, and he came back and now these folks just growing. So it's just like, okay, what's going on here? And so next week, we'll dive more into why that's actually important as we as we as we move next week to um talking about how africa becomes kind of like the first major uh theological seedbed of christianity post first century right like that's 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 a big story of how what officially happens to make christians and jews officially separate in the minds of 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 the Roman outside world, like there's a there's an actual uh, historical thread that talks about that. So we'll dive more into that next week. But yes, this band of mis- misfits just keep growing and they won't go away. What's going on? And guess what? Two thousand years later, we still here. Come on now, come on somebody. Next narrative: uh, Jesus was created at the Council of Nicaea. We'll talk about that next week, I promise. But that's one to keep in your, in, your, um, in your books, right? Here's a big one. Jesus was a copycat of Horus and also other ancient pagan god, gods. I want to answer this two ways. I want to answer this with the first century, first century source and then also some current sources. Justin Martyr was one of the first Christian apologists in, in church history. In this book, chapters 20, 21 through 26, he writes about what separates Christ from ancient gods from Egypt, Rome, and Greece. And so Justin Martyr goes before the Roman Senate. He goes before the emperor with these apologies because at this time Christianity is being persecuted by all kinds of false narratives. And so just the martyr gives an apologetic, reasonable, Holy Spirit filled defense as to why number one, that's the injustice, but then also two telling us how Christianity and Christ is different and distinct from all the pagan, Egyptian, Greek and Roman gods. And what he pretty much comes down to say is this, these gods of old are demonic counterfeits. So this is why I say there's a stronghold here because in the black community, if we're telling people that Jesus is a copycat of Horus, if we're telling people that Jesus is a copycat of Egyptian gods, and I go back to Justin Martyr who 2000 years ago was telling the Roman Senate to their face, that yo, these gods are demonic counterfeits, then there is a stronghold, y'all. 
on the minds of so many minorities. And it's rooted in what we talked about earlier, pain, pain. It is pain that Satan uses to wrap around our hearts and our minds. And if we don't know the history of our faith, that where these questions have been answered long ago by people a lot smarter than me and so many others, y'all, we, we are in trouble. We need to know our faith and our history. We need to be able to share that, man, these questions are not only answered in the biblical text, but through our heroes of old that were able to give a defense for the gospel. I'll lift you guys with one article, uh, actually two more, by Jay Warner Wallace. Uh, there's a link there. Feel free to, to check it out. And then one more guy I want us to, I want us to take a look at is by Vince Bantu. Uh, Vince Bantu is... Um, actually, actually was with him two weeks, two weekends ago in Nashville. Uh, he spoke to some TSU students, uh, one of the HBCUs in Nashville. And he wrote a book pretty much talking about conversations like these. My boy Mo, read that entire uh, excerpt for me from Vince Bantu. Pause out there, Mo. So what he's saying is, right, so think about everything in, everything in like context, right? So think about the black conscious community that's saying, that's telling folks like Martez, myself, Renata, Mo, and so many others, right, that, man, leave these white folks alone in this Christianity. Come over to your Egyptian gods, bro, because it's a copycat anyway, right? So they're trying to pull us in this, right, saying that, you guys have the copycat. We got the real thing. Come to commit. So we think about the conscious community. Again, the whole idea is awaken to your nature. Awaken to who you really are and your identity. Get away from this. Come to this. And what Vince is saying is, as Mo is reading it, I'm going to let Mo keep reading, but what he's saying is, is that if you look at these gods in their entire history and their entire breakdown, there is a clear difference between Horus and Jesus. And so, keep reading. All right, so it's getting graphic, right? <laughs> it's getting graphic, but what he's saying is, if Horus and Jesus are the same, why did Jesus come from a virgin and Horus came from another god's bodily fluids. Are those the same thing? Not at all. But, but oh, we getting graphic, but guess what? This is what they believed. So when we say demonic counterfeits, it don't get much crazier than that. And poor Jessica Grimm, she's just like, what in the world I just read? <laughs> she's like, what I just read? But y'all, I know it's crazy. I get it. You're like, who would believe this? Man, when people are hurting and when people want to answer for why the world is the way it is, they will believe anything. And we're seeing that with stuff like this. I know it sounds like you will believe that. Ain't no historical account of that, but it's plenty about Jesus. But you believe that? Pain, y'all. Pain. Pain will make a person do anything outside the, outside the grace of God. Anything. Keep reading, Mo. Uh, yeah, you did. Praise the Lord.
Pause right there. So he's saying, so now he's getting to the difference, y'all. Jesus' goal was to save humanity. Hero or Horus, he just wanted one kingdom. There ain't no comparison, right? One guy came from a virgin. One guy came from a dead God's fluids. There's a distinct difference. So when we're on the street and we hear brothers say, hey, man, look, yo, Jesus is a copycat. I need to be able to say, do you know how Horace came to be, bro? Let's have a conversation. Let's get some donuts. Let's get some chicken wings. Let's get some pizza. Let's get some barbecue. Come by the crib and let's talk. Because I want to be able to talk to you about this. Right? Come on. That's a great question. That's a great question. So if somebody were to hit me with, you know what? Jesus came from Joseph. He came from this, this, and that. Here's what I would do. Because surely you're not going to be like, no, this, this is how it went. And then they're like, you're right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I believe. <laughs> well, for one, I'll be honest, y'all. Usually when that happens, I am in prayer the entire time. I'm in prayer as they're talking. Honestly, half the time I'm listening because I'm praying like, okay, God, I'm hearing something that is legit like, okay, they just went off the deep end and you know what? I need to know how to answer that. Best way I would answer that. I'm not praying, but I should be praying as you ask me that question. What I would say is this. If I can at least get you to agree on that this dude was a real person, if I can at least get him or her to agree with that, that, okay, Jesus may have been real. Now we gotta ask another question. If he's real, what are the most reliable sources about him? We got secular texts and we have biblical texts, right? I would even be able to tell him that because what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to throw facts out there to kind of get them to think reasonably. I'm trying to get them to come out of emotion, right? And just for a second, can the grace of God give you grace to think reasonably? Okay, he's real. Okay, now now that we know he's real, what what do sources say about this real man? Horace, we know, probably not real. Jesus is. So what does this text say about a real man that was alive? Okay, he said this, he said this. So now two things have to be understood if he said these things. Either he's a liar and he's crazy or he's the real thing. And if they still say, well, the Bible is this, the Bible is this, I can say, okay, think about this. Let's look at the three major religions on this planet right now, Buddhism, Islam, and Christianity. And also Judaism as well, but let's go with Confucianism, um, Buddhism, uh, probably the same thing. Now let's do Confucius, Islam, and Christianity, these three. If you look at Islam, Islam was written at least 500 years after Muhammad. Confucius, almost a thousand years. The Bible was written at best the longest, 30 years after Christ dies. Is when we see our first New Testament text. Correct me if I'm wrong. 30 years, right? Not Old Testament, New Testament text. That means writers in their lifetime wrote about a historical figure, whereas Confucius and Muhammad wrote theirs hundreds of years after. There's no eyewitness for those guys. There are numerous eyewitnesses, secular and historical, about Jesus. Okay, so now we gotta get to something. Is everybody lying? Now we can have a real conversation. Because whether you believe the Bible or not, 
you can't and they and they and they and they share this whenever you're talking about history and if you really want to get to the truth about a matter historically you want to be able to find the closest historical document regarding to a fact because the closer it is to, to when something happened you have more eyewitnesses to the account this is logical reasoning that they that they teach as you talk apologetics is where is when was this written about this person? Can eyewitnesses verify this? <laughs> Siri, you talking to me? No, I'm just playing. Siri got the answer right. Yeah, it's, it's the eyewitness accounts. Christianity, despite what anyone says regarding any faith, has the closest historical narratives of really any. When you look at a figure like Jesus, there's something to that. Hypothetically. <laughs> Hope that answered that. And again, that may not save the, the brother or the sister. It may not, but to at least get them thinking, y'all. Can the grace of God open their mind to think reason? I still believe, man, people can be saved and, and, and God can bring people to him through reason. I'm both supernatural and reason. I think they work hand in hand. I think the Lord, if by his grace, if he can call someone to think logically about this, like, oh, snap, like, there may be something to that. That may the grace of God snatch their heart when the time is right with something supernatural to where what reason walked them to, grace can bring them through. I should probably put that on like a t-shirt. Okay, all right. Uh, I'm gonna move on, Mo, appreciate you. I'm move on. Uh, next narrative, right, that we see. The Bible promotes Slavery and oppression. Y'all, how much time I got? I got, oh my gosh, time, time ran over. Okay, okay. So, I'm going to let y'all figure this out. Should I mention this right here or wait till next week? It's a lot. I mean, not, I mean, this bullet point right here is what I meant. Not everything. <laughs> What y'all want? What y'all want? Okay. Let's do it next week. All right, all right. Let's take a vote. All right, so so our next bullet point. Yeah. Because I'm going to talk about the, the slave Bible with this piece. So do y'all want to talk about the slave Bible now or next week? Okay. I'll start and give like some brief context. Then next week I'll do more. So I'll do that. All right. So, so what you'll hear, and really you'll hear about this not only in the black community, but you'll even hear this from a lot of liberal theologians in academia, right? Like you even hear it from them where it talks about how the Bible uh, promotes oppression, slavery, and subjugation, right? You'll hear this. And so I want to speak to something specifically that's happened historically that has helped make that narrative very strong. Um, 1807, the slave Bible was made and it circulated across the West Indies. In fact, I, I sent some leaks, I put some links on here. Uh, I'll talk more about this next week, but I actually wrote these for the Jude 3 Project. I wrote a two part series on the slave Bible. So if you have time, check it out. But pretty much it, it was formed after Haiti had the first and only successful slave uprising in, um, in, um, in the West, in the West. And the slave culture, the slave leaders were so afraid of it happening again that their first question was, what do we need to do to keep this from happening again? And their answer was the slave Bible. A group of English 
scholars, clerics, and writers made a legitimate slave Bible that circulated across the entire West in the Indies and in America. And if you look at, and, and there's only three original copies left. One used to be at Fisk University in Nashville. It's not there anymore. The one that was in Fisk, I think, is in D.C. at the Museum of the Bible. Other two are, two are in Europe. I'll bring, a, I'll bring a copy of one next week, but uh, one of the guys, with permission, of course, from the, I don't know, from the people that keep them, I don't know, <laughs> took a photocopy of the entire slave Bible, and it sold on Amazon so people can see what's actually in it. I'll bring it next week. But it's a legitimate copy, photocopy of the entire slave Bible, how they took out 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. And so that Bible was literally created to keep slaves subjugated. And again, we'll talk about this more next week, but slaves weren't even really seen as worthy to be uh, evangelized prior to that. There's like this whole history that thinks, oh, blacks became slaves, let's give them Jesus to keep them in check. That's not the case. There's a whole history behind that. But when you look at the slave Bible, it was made specifically to keep people of color from uprising. We'll talk more next week. <laughs> Leave off with that and I'll bring the actual slave Bible to our, to our class, but quick question. How y'all feel about this stuff? Is it good? Is it good? Okay. For my white brothers and sisters, I want to say this to y'all. Um, a lot of y'all have not heard a lot of this. You haven't. And I probably understand why. But here's my hope here in this, is that when you're on social media, or if you have friends that hint at anything like this in conversations or in circles or wherever it is, man, y'all understand it. And I pray that as the Lord brings more people of color as friends into your life, that when they share things about faith that they wrestle with, that man, you guys now have, have some kind of framework of, man, I know where that comes from. And there can be true empathy to engage in love because one of the ways that we heal from trauma and from things is in relationship, right? So if somebody has engaged some kind of relational pain or some kind of relational trauma, What's hurt in relationships is healed in relationships as well. And so my hope is that this stuff will just teach all of us how to be better Christians, how to be better witnesses, how to be more loving, how to have an understanding of how history affects all of us. Man, King makes this statement, um, I forgot what book he was in, but he was just like, man, like if we, if one group suffers, man, we all suffer, especially as a church, especially as a multi-ethnic church where we're bringing all these people together, right? And, and like I haven't gone very deep into one topic, but even urban apologetics touches the Latino community because they're seeing some of the same stuff too with some of this that us black Americans are seeing. So it's not just this group and even Native Americans as well, right? So as we become a real church in America and God is bringing us all together, right? We have to be able to have these conversations, dialogue together, understand how the past has affected us, man, so we can walk in harmony together in love towards the cross. So next week we'll conclude this 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 week <laughs> next week we'll conclude this week and we'll even dive into uh christianity in africa post first century <laughs>